Welcome to Church 213. We're so glad that you're tuning into our summer series titled On Your Mark. As we go through the book of Mark, equipping you on how to run strong this summer for Christ, we pray this message impacts you where you're at and where you're going this summer. Thanks for listening. Good to be in the house of the living God. Amen. Good to see you guys. Hey, I want to welcome someone for the very first time. I want you to meet Mr. and Mrs. Jason Andrade right here. They were married. Woo! Married Monday night right here. Right here. One week down, eternity to go. To God be the glory. Hey, we're, uh, we're digging in. We're digging in. Uh, the goal for me this morning is to get right into the tech to make a beeline for the cross. You have your Bibles. Let's get after it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. We are in week six. Not yet. He's, he's on the spot. I love it, man. I love it, brother. You're on the spot. Week six, a boss who brings good change. Um, last week was the pivot point. That was the topic. Remember we talked about what the gospel pivot looks like. In, in Mark chapter 8. And so we've been working our way through the book of Mark, not verse by verse. There's just not enough time allowed in the month of July. But what we've done is, is I've taken the theme of Mark and I've picked out kind of head-scratching things that happened in the gospel to help reinforce that theme, which is Jesus is the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God and, y'all say it with me, Savior of the world. It's been on your notes every week except for this week because you're like, what? Wait. Hopefully you've memorized it by now. And so we've jumped, we've jumped from the pivot point which Jesus turned his eyes in Mark 8 away from his authority and now to what he was going to be as the suffering servant. So everything from here on out in the, in the series through the rest of the summer is going to be pointed toward Jerusalem because we made that pivot last week. Y'all with me? Basically, his attention has turned to Jerusalem as the boss has showed up. A boss had come to bring good change, and at this point, there was no turning back. If you've ever held a job, chances are you've had a boss. Not all bosses are created equal. You agree with that? You know, it's been said that blessed is he who talks in circles, for he shall become a big wheel. I realize that, that bosses are, are different. Some bosses delegate authority. They shift all the blame and take all the credit. Some bosses are great, sacrificial, uh, confident leaders. But bosses are those things that we can all relate to. If you've ever had the privilege of leading other people, you understand how difficult carrying that weight is. Because the fact is, you can't delegate accountability. If you've been giving, given the tools to respond to something with ability, then you have to carry the responsibility of how you responded with that task. It's the boss's responsibility to be aware of what's at stake. Y'all with me? That's it. And because the boss is tasked with knowing what's at stake, they have to react with diligence over what they have been given to care for. 
parents, as leaders of the home, we know what's at stake. So we are diligent with that responsibility. Write this down. This is first on your notes. To ignore the diligence the authority of Christ brings shows you're unaware of what's at stake. To ignore the diligence the authority of Christ brings shows you're unaware of what's at stake. Jesus was diligent. He was diligent, which is why he made the pivot point last week in in 8, and he's pointing his responsibility for the humanity, for the blood that was applied, he turned it to the cross. And so it's in this context that he knows what's at stake. It's in the context of the boss coming to town that we're going to focus on for the rest of today and throughout the end of the month as we kind of roll into August. So if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let's, let's open together. And uh, if you're willing and able, stand together in honor of this red word and the other scriptures that we are going to, uh, to dive into today. We also have it on the screen for you. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Says this. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethage in Bethany, Near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find the colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat, until untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Which is a legitimate question. It's what I would be wondering. What do you guys do in stealing this donkey? What are, you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's going on? Say this. The Lord needs it and they will send it back here right away. Chapter 11, verse 4. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by the door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing this? Untying the colt. And they answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let him go. Man, Jesus kind of knows what's up, right? Not only what, what are you going to find, but probably the question that you were going to be asked. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many people spread their clothes on the road. And others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And those who went ahead of those and, and, and who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. God, we, we just can do nothing But open this text and make a beeline for the cross because it's the cross to which the blood was applied. And so God, I pray as Timothy is challenged to to use this word that it has power to pierce and to cut and to prod and to mold and to change us for your glory. God, I pray, Lord, that this word would find itself on soft soil this morning as a church family. Soil that can do nothing but just reflect back on the sacrifice that was made. The truth that is revealed right here in this place. 
God, for those that are carrying heavy hearts in here this morning, God, I pray that this word will be applied as salve to a wound. God, I pray for those that are in here with, with uh, anxiety about anything that's coming up today, tonight, tomorrow, Lord, that you would just wash over us with a peace that passes understanding, knowing that your mercy is made new every morning. And God, that we would hold our hands to you, our everlasting and living hope. God, use your word for a miracle this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hey, you guys can have a seat. So here's the thing. <clears throat> Talking about being at stake, a boss who brings good change. The stakes could not be higher right here than, than for the battle of the spiritual freedom that's right here in Mark 11. I mean, from, from the Genesis garden, Satan has been trying to stop Jesus from coming. Over and over and over, death of children, isolation and, and, uh, and slavery, Moses, I mean, just go, Joseph, it just goes on and it goes on. Then Mary and Joseph, and then Herod. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was coming, Satan knew it, and he's trying everything he could do to stop him from making his way to Jerusalem. But Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Can't stop the boss, can you? Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to take care of some unfinished business. He arrives to set the record, the record straight for all of eternity. To God be the glory. And what we see in Mark is, Mark records for us here the start of Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life. It's, it's so important, it's found in all four Gospels. And it's a third of, of the book of Mark. That's a substantial amount giving, given 660 verses over 16 chapters. A third of those have been dedicated to just one week. And so the gospel pivot that turns us there is important. That's why we're going to be in this one week for the next three or four weeks. The week begins with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem during Passover. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who the Bible says was slain before the foundation of, of the earth was laid, was now to be slain in space and time. Man, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But it's here. The moment eternity past is now, is now here. And this triumphant entry, it's monumental in the Christian faith because it separates and it defines what kind of Jesus what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. This triumphant entry. How he rolls, how the boss rolls into town is important. Steve Lambert has a great comparison to make this point between Christianity and Islam. Steve says this. He says, in no other manner are the differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and the legacies of their prophets. See, perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem. See, Muhammad rolled into Mecca hundreds of years after Jesus. Muhammad rode, it, rode, in, rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. 
And those who greeted him were either absorbed into the movement, enslaved, or killed as he took over as religious and, and, um, and political and military leader. It was a hostile takeover. Jesus, though, the, the, the proven authoritative miracle-working Son of God and Savior of the world, arrives on a donkey. Wah, 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 right? Accompanied by just a handful of country people. <laughs> some, country, some country folk. Just some, some, low, some low-class country boys. And, he, and he's welcome and he's greeted by people waving just some branches they snatched off the trees and laid their old coats down. Jesus came by invitation, not by force. You see the difference here? Jesus did not come to turn the world upside down, but he came to turn the world right side up. And his approach was radical. And so for us, our approach has to be radical. We can't just kick down doors and start swinging swords. We have to serve and love and be gentle and let the Spirit of God rule and reign in our lives. Jesus takes the stage to remind us that things must change when the boss shows up. Things must change when the boss shows up. And you know, does things change when the boss shows up? When the boss shows up? When the boss shows up? You know what I'm saying? I mean, even grown children, things change when the boss shows up. Right? Back there, Darren and Tim. Right? Things change when the ball shows up. I mean, when I'm at home, things change when the ball shows up. <laughs> Don't look at me in that tone of voice. It's just the reality of it. You know, I used to work at my dad's store. I worked night shift. and Braves always came on. The game got good about 10.30 or so, and I'd be kicked back. I knew I had stuff to do. Rarely did he come by, but he had this red vehicle, and I knew that, that he, would, he would wheel in there real quick. And I'd be propped back watching the Braves, you know, Steve Avery letting them have it back then. And then I would see the front of that vehicle pull in, and I would jump up, and I would grab the duster, and I'd look busy. He wasn't fooled. He knew. He knew. Because things change when what? The boss shows up. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you a couple of reminders that a good boss, which is King Jesus, that will keep us close and clean in our worship this summer. And the first thing I want to point out from this is a good boss maintains control. A good boss, it, it maintains control. They maintain control. Jesus and the disciples, we see that in verse, in verse 1. It says this in verse, verse 1 of chapter 11. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethage and, and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you as soon as you enter it. You're going to find a colt tied there. On which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it. And if anyone says to you. Why are you doing this? Just say the Lord needs it. Send it back here right away. And so they went. And found a colt. Outside in the street. Tied by the door. They untied it. And some of those that were standing there. Said to them. What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they answered. Just as Jesus had said. So they let him go. See, what we see right here is the disciples were entering the city. They're drawing near to Jerusalem. 
they came to Bethany, which was on the Mount of Olives. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And this was like Jesus' home base right outside of Jerusalem. He was always kind of staying at other people's houses, wasn't he? Have you let the Lord go home with you? He wants to be in our personal space. And he's going to stay there during the final week of his life. And you need to know that Jerusalem at this point, because it was the annual Passover, there would have been five or six times the amount of people around the city. Some say maybe two million people at that time. So the city would have swelled in its population. You know, kind of like Athens on a Saturday during football season. You know, nobody's there on Wednesday. But come Thursday and Friday, it's like, what in the world? It's the largest, it's the largest city population-wise in the state in the fall. Did you guys know that? But yet Athens, Clark County is the smallest county in the state. It's because people are crazy. And they drive up there. You can't get a chili dog anymore from the varsity. Mm. Y'all pray for me. See, here's the thing. <clears throat> the boss had a one-way ticket to maintain control of the sheep to which the father had given. And God must control your heart before he can control your hand. That's what he's showing these disciples as he's gaining their heart, as he's sending them to do his work. And so there's two reasons from the text that as... Um, as the, as the king, as the boss, leads us and shows us what's at stake, there's two things that I want to point out here with him having control, maintains control, that will help us let him have control of our situations. Because there are times, y'all, that you just need to know that God is in control. Remind me, Lord. Remind me that you are in control. God, remind me that you still have the whole world. In your hands, right? And we see this. The first thing is this. He is the divine boss. This is more than just, just livestock here. He's making a point. See, the timing of these events are perfect. See, people were coming into town to celebrate a moment in their history where God had rescued them from the death angel that was to take the firstborn when they were in Egypt. God said, take a lamb and put that blood of the lamb over the doorpost and that angel will pass you over. And so every year from that point on, the Israelites would celebrate yearly the feast of Passover. And now Jesus, the Lamb of God, is coming to town during Passover. You think this is a winky dink no, God is in the details. That's the beauty of random acts of kindness. Because those small details, God is in those details. You never know what, what, what he's doing when you just kindly walk up and do a random act for somebody. Jesus is on time. He's never early, but he's never late. He's in the details. And Jesus, right here, what we see, he is the divine boss. And so he calls for a colt that had never been ridden. He makes that point very clear. A colt that had never been ridden. Why, Why would that be important? Well, because it proves his omniscience as God. It proves that that, that colt naturally wouldn't want a stranger on his back. We got some real life cowboys in the back of here. And they can testify, okay? If I were to check my sources, my references, they don't want a, they don't want a human on their back, do they? Typically, no. 
And it's, this is important because the submission of, of that cult to the command of the Lord demonstrates Jesus' authority over creation. It's like, I got this. Just find something wild and it will submit to me. And as I was thinking about that, man, my heart got so heavy. Because what's heartbreaking is this, that mankind is the only thing in creation that will willingly rebel against the Creator. That's it. Water and waves, they obey. Plants obey. Planets orbit exactly as God says. The natural law of physics that God created to govern our world, they never fall out of line. Trees don't rebel. Whales don't ignore. Lightning doesn't refuse. But us, only us does, does call, God call for and we say, don't get on my back. Mm-mm. Man. Y'all look at this picture right here. Picture of a sky. Isn't that incredible? I mean, with that picture up, just think about this. Only, only humanity, only us will, will look up into the sky, ha- have our breath taken by its splendor. Just, just be in awe, the size and the grandeur, and then walk away saying, nope, I'm going to do what I want to do. Only us. I'll be all in for the cause of Christ. If anything more important don't come up. Jeremiah 17 kind of gives us a glimpse of the heart of man. It says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable, which is exactly what Shelby said before the song. Who can understand it? You ever thought, about, thought that about your kids? Why, why, what is wrong with you? What are you thinking? My dad used to tell my mom, can you do something with that boy? What, what, what was going through your mind, son? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. See, the Bible says that only man can sin so great and then be so naive and like, what? I didn't do anything. You know that motion, that teenage motion? What are you talking about? What sins am I committing? If the disciples, this, and this is important, if the disciples run into questions to why a person should just hand over the livestock to strangers, Jesus gives them the answer. He said, just tell them that the Lord needs this animal. Which in the context mean that Jesus was saying, I'm more than a rebel, I'm more than a teacher, I'm more than a community leader. This is a claim to be Lord of all creation. That's what he's saying. That's what the disciples would get. And so the people that had that animal, yeah, they wouldn't realize maybe who Jesus was, but the fact that they were giving a report from somebody that said, the Lord needs it, they'd be like, I don't know who this Lord is, but we know what Lord means, and take it, because I don't want to take any chances. And so when the Lord calls us to do something, we might not understand it, but guess what we have to do? If the Lord says it, I'm not taking any chances. Just respond to it in faith. And let the Lord work. And what we see in the details 
of this entry is proof to us that submission to the Savior is a big deal if we are going to get all the glory out of our lives that the Lord deserves. And so Jesus knew the right time to arrive. He knows where this animal is going to be waiting because he was the divine boss, right? But, but something else I want to point out to you. He was also the prophesied boss. We see this in verse 7. Remember, a good, a good boss maintains control. God is a good, good father. He maintains control. He is the divine boss. He's also the prophesied boss. Man, it's about to get real. If y'all ready, buckle up. Because this, this just begins to unpack itself so beautifully. Look at verse 7. They brought the donkey to Jesus, threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread their leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Why did he go back to Bethany? Because he was tired. Went back home. It was late in the afternoon. He just rolled in to take a good survey of what was going on around him. He knew. But in his humanity, he rolled in as he turned his eyes to the cross. And so what you see in verse um, 10 and 11, especially 10, is the way your Bible is formatted, you can tell that this is prophecy. It's something additional. And this prophecy is coming from um, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9. Zechariah in the Old Testament is prophesying a coming king. And he says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Man, that is specific, isn't it? I mean, didn't Zechariah just write this about 10 minutes before as he saw him coming in? Isn't that the timing? You know, it's like, you know, your wife rolls in and, and you see her coming in and she's got the groceries. And you're like, hey, I feel like mom's probably going to roll in, need some help with the groceries. Y'all walk outside. And then she, they walk, the kids walk out. And the mom's like, wow. There's no wow there. I saw her pull up. You can't take credit for that. So what is the deal with this? Well, here it is. The fulfillment that we see here in Zechariah is exactly what he predicted Jesus would do and how he would arrive 500 years before Jesus rolled in on the foal. This is the kind of stuff that will give an agnostic whiplash. What? Because it's proof that the Bible is the inspired, completely true, without error, written record of God to us. And what's going on here is, is so much more than Jesus just calling for a donkey. Look at, look at verse 12. Talk about this is a prophesied boss. Verse 12 says this. The next day. All right, so, so he rolls in. 
He looks around. He surveys the temple. He takes his, he takes his country boys, and they, and they go back up into the hills, and they get some rest. The next day, they start to head back into town. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What in the world is going on? Well, this is a head scratcher. Context brings the Bible to life. This is what's going on. It's so much more than him needing a, a snack for breakfast. Jesus is showing us that the Lord is over past, present, and future. Here's what I mean by that. Fig harvest was late summer, early fall. But all of this happened in the spring. We know that because of the Jewish calendar when they would have Passover. And so you would expect to find unripe figs because an unripe fig would always pop out of the tree right before the leaves came. So if Jesus saw a fig tree with leaves on it early in the spring, he would expect to find unripe figs because they always came before the leaves. Y'all with me? And since the tree in question had leaves on it, you would expect it, but the tree was lying. Jesus knew that tree didn't have figs on it. Remember, he said, and the disciples heard it. He's teaching them. He's showing them something that's about to happen. He's using this tree. What the tree looked like it was doing on the outside wasn't the reality. This is good. I'm glad I got here today to hear it. It's not the reality. So Jesus judged it for its hypocrisy and stopped it from doing what it was made to do. His purpose was cut off. Its life was cut short. Its influence was removed. It says it right there. It says, no one will ever, no, no one, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Why would they not eat fruit from it? Because they can't reach it? No, because the tree would no longer produce fruit. He's saying this as he's heading back into town. The day before, he rolled into town to survey the temple. Y'all with me? So what he's doing is he's using this tree to represent the temple that Jesus just visited the day before. And see, because the way the hill was, where these trees were as you enter into the city from Bethany, the tree, it's likely that that tree would be in the foreground of the temple. So you could see the temple and the tree in one frame. So he's talking about this tree and off in the distance would be what? The temple. It's possible there. See, the temple, what was the temple? What's the big deal? The temple was the access point to the mercy of God. But the worship at the temple was shallow. The worship in the temple, the lifestyle of the leaders were immoral. And their dedication to authentic worship, it was dry. And the temple had turned into a building that was just for looks. Just had some leaves on it. You see the comparison here? It no longer did God's work, just like the leaves on that tree. And so Jesus is basically saying the temple, its purpose is about to be cut off. Its life will be cut short. Its influence 
is going to be removed. That makes that scripture come to life, doesn't it? And guess what? That's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Romans rolled into Jerusalem. They had had enough of the religious rebellion. Rolled into the city with Titus and they destroyed the temple. They cut down and they pushed over the walls. And just like Jesus said, it happened because the fruitless religious system it represented Jesus was tired of how the people had abandoned and rejected him. And so the Lord cut it off and destroyed it. All that's left is the Western Wall, which is where if you, you know, if, if you see, if you see um, people in Jerusalem, Orthodox Jews, you know, they're, they're dressed very official, they have the black hats, the men do, and they're standing with their nose against the Western Wall. Because that's all that's left of the temple. They're standing there. Worshipping. But what they don't realize is. A new access point had just arrived to the mercy of God. It was Jesus. It still is Jesus. And the temple that, that would now house the presence of God. Is us. So in 70 AD. He did this. Because it was not producing fruit. And He reigns and He lives through us so that we can produce fruit to the glory of God. There's a new mercy seat. There's a new access point to the things of the kingdom and the spiritual realm. And the new point is through the cross. That's why He was there. Before the earth was formed, it was already planned for a cult. A picture of humility and tenderness would carry the Messiah through whom peace with God and a new temple would be possible. That'll preach right there. See, you, you can't write a script like this unless you're God. Guess what? He is. And so I hope you see that as, as Jesus approached the city, yes, a good boss maintains control because they know what's up. They know why they're there and they know what's to come. A second thing, though, is this. A good boss keeps the focus. A good boss keeps the focus. Let's look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began throwing out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. God is in the details. Y'all better hold on. It's going to get. And he would not permit anyone carrying goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Now, like I said just a minute ago, sometimes you have to fly the boss in because things need to be adjusted. Corporate's here. You know what I'm saying? 
A boss has to show up to readjust production to realign the effort to meet the goal. In other words, sometimes the boss has to boss. Amen? Because something or somebody has just gotten off track. You know, it's why parents snap. Are there any snappers in here? Y'all have any snappers? Yeah, admit it. Say, I, I'm a self-admitted snapper. Okay. What about a self-admitted slapper? No, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. My mama was a slapper. Okay. My daddy was a snapper. Actually, my daddy was a pincher. Yeah. I'm a looker. You know, I'm just like, pretty much does it. Okay. But sometimes the boss has to boss because something or somebody has gotten off track. Yogi Bear, Yogi Berra, y'all know he's a great catcher for the New York Yankees, and he's known for talking a lot of trash on the baseball field. That's the point of a catcher. You know, a point of a catcher is to distract the batter. And so while you're in the catching position, what you want to do is you just want to kind of be a little chatterbox. You want to say things like, hey, batter, 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 your shoes untied, you know. Hey, batter, 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 you know, start talking about the mama and stuff like that just to try to get in their head. Well, the story is one, one time um, the Braves were in town and, and, uh, in, in New York and Hank Aaron was at the plate. And so Yogi Berra started doing what he was doing. He started telling Hank, he's like, hey, Hank, the label on your bat's not turned the right position. The, la- the, the words on your bat's turned the wrong way. You need to turn those words on your bat. Hank never flinched. He never got distracted. Then he hit a two-run shot over the left field fence. And as he round, rounded second, as he rounded third, as he rounded home, heading back to the dugout, he just looked back at Yogi and he said, I didn't come to New York to read. I came to hit. I didn't come to read. I came to hit. See, the man was focused. man was focused. And after entering the, the city, where does the Bible say that he went? After entering the city, where did he go? To the temple. He went to the temple. He didn't stop by Chick-fil-A. He came straight to church. That's why they close on Sunday, because you guys will be late. He went straight to the temple. Because the temple is the place, y'all, that gives, that gives the city its pulse. It should. This, this church could, should give this community its pulse. What, what would this community be like if this church ceased to exist? What would your life be like? This church gives families its pulse. It's the place, the temple's a place which sets the temperature of the culture. Can I get a witness? I have any friends in here. Yes, that's where we are. But what Jesus discovered really going on was much different than it appeared at first glance. When he walked in the temple, he knew, man, it had some deep-rooted issues. They had forgotten the awe and majesty of God. It had lost its focus. So what did Jesus do? Well, he had to do some deep cleaning. He had to go in. He had to go in and went directly to the temple to access those deep-rooted problems. You know, anytime I go to the dentist, I always brush my teeth before I go. And I don't need Oreos before I go in. Not just I brush my teeth, but I'll even floss. Not even floss, but, but sometimes I'll use mouthwash. Not just the cheap stuff, but the, the brown stuff, the Listerine, the stuff that, you know, scalds your taste buds up and peels the skin off the roof of your mouth and, you know, makes you feel like you're breathing fire. 
Why? Because I want to give the appearance that I've been taking care of my teeth. But it never, it never fails. When I go in there, the dentist, doggone he or she, they'll take x-rays. They take x-rays and they get, they get a look of what is really deep down in there. And then what do they do? They pull out these tools of death and they scrape around in my mouth like it's some horror movie. Why? Because they want to get under the gum line to the places that I can't see. Because they're, they're, about, re, they're, they're about looking at a different focus. And that's the beauty of God's Word. It helps us get under the gum line because we can come in here and your breaths could smell good and your teeth could be sparkly and from my perspective you look good in the neighborhood but God knows your heart and God loves us enough yes to meet us right where we are but he loves us too much to leave us that way and so he wants to take an x-ray of our heart he wants to get down and that's what Jesus was doing Jesus was getting down into the gum line of the temple He was looking deeper. The Bible says that man looks on the outside, but God looks at what? Yeah, the heart, the inside, the motive, the integrity of our shadows. And so when the Bible talks about the temple, here's what's going on with this temple. This was this huge, vast complex. It had, had many different levels. Think about it like um, maybe Truist Park or maybe Turner Field. You know, you have the parking lot. But then, you know, you, you can take that next level and you can, you know, um, scalp a ticket and get in the door. Okay, so then once you get in the door, you have like the general population, all the, the, the food and the shops and stuff like this. But then, you know, if you really, if you really found a good ticket, you, know, you can go into, you know, the box seat. But then if you really knew somebody that you had some dirt on, you know, you can get a ticket from them to get you into the locker room. So the point is this, you would go into different levels, and the temple was like that. The outside was called the the court of Gentiles. It was 35 acres, this court of Gentiles on the outside was huge. This is where anybody, this this is where those that didn't have a religious ticket could come in to gain the presence of God. And then it got more um, exclusive as you went closer to the middle until you got to the very center, which was the Holy of Holies, where the priest would go once a year and make the atonement for the sacrifice. And so instead of a place focused on worship of the one true God, the Bible says the temple had become a den of thieves. That's pretty bold language. Because the locals that were claiming to know God personally were using the temple to rob others the chance from actually knowing God. They were stumbling blocks for other people in spiritual need. They were stumbling blocks for other people in spiritual need. Did you know that we can be a stumbling block if we are not careful for other people in spiritual need? When we're different on Saturday night than you are on Sunday morning, you'll cause somebody to trip up and stumble. When you're... When you're, when you're Snapchat looks very different than Facebook. You can cause someone to stumble. When you shake my hand and you hug Dom's neck and then you talk about us on the way home. 
you can cause somebody to stumble. You don't do that because we love you. You love us. And your cars are bugged so we can hear everything you say. <laughs> not really. Not really. That was a joke. See, this church is only as powerful as the purity of its people. And see, what Jesus found when he went to the temple complex was major corruption all done in the name of God. The temple had become a stumbling block for the nations. And it broke the heart of God because it says in the word that he came to seek and save that which was lost. The whole world. So the religious community should have been the ones that had open arms, but they were closed arms and they were just greedy. His father's house had been turned into a commerce center, center full of crooks and thieves. And, here, and, here's, and here's why. This is the context. This is where it comes to life. This was Passover week, right? right? We've already established that. Which means that there would have been thousands of animals and other items of sacrifice being bought and sold. But they were being, they were being bought and sold with, with wicked and impure motives. Jesus knows the heart of every single person that had money, on their hand, money in their hands and blood on their hands. He knew their heart. He could see it. And that can be a frightening thought that God, no, God knows the intentions of our heart. He knows the intentions of what's in our hand. So whether we are holding a mic, an instrument, a Bible, or a sermon guide, God knows the intentions of our heart. And so as he rolls into this temple, what you need to know is this. In order to get into the temple, you had to pay a temple tax. And the temple tax could only be paid with Jewish money in the city. And so people were coming from out of town, which means they had out of town money, right? So in order to pay the tax, you had to have that money exchanged. So there would be money exchangers there. Yeah, just follow. Follow the money. You know, hang with me. And money changers, they had a monopoly on the rate of exchange. So they would charge huge fees. And to be a money changer, listen, it's about to get crooked. To be a money changer, you had to get a permit. It was a permit office. What is it with people in permits? You, you had to get a permit. And guess who granted the permits giving the vendors exclusive rights to exchange money in the temple courts? The priest and the Sanhedrin. And who was the high priest? Caiaphas. Guess who helped manage the vendors list with him? It was his father-in-law, Annas, which used to be the high priest. But Roman booted him from his position because he was a crook, but he still held the title, and so he had authority over the religious establishment. If you're with me, say, I am. So Annas and Caiaphas ran the show and sold franchises to the merchants for these exorbitant prices and then skimmed off a huge percentage of the profits that the vendors themselves made. The temple of God, which was the place of worship and praise for all people, had been turned into a place of extortion and abuse. And here was their hustle. Out-of-town pilgrims knew they had to produce a perfect sacrifice. And so the out-of-towners 
would have to be forced to buy approved perfect animals by this mafia of temple priests from vendors that they were getting kickbacks from. So they were getting kickbacks from this vendor that sold the purest of animals because they said they were the purest because they had the authority as priests to say that's the purest and that's what God requires. But they knew that that guy was going to put some of that profit back in their pocket. So of course they would say, use this contractor. He's my brother-in-law. You see what's going on here? It's the sound of praise and prayers and meditations of God's glory and His majesty had been replaced by the bleeding of the sheep and the cooing of the doves, drowned out by this loud clinking of money and noise and hustling merchants and their customers like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You've seen that? People yelling and screaming. That's what the temple had turned into and Jesus saw it. It was extortion, it was bribery, it was greed, it was dishonesty in the name of religion. And he started cleaning house because this was my father's house. And you guys are causing the nations to stumble. The world is separated from my father because of your greed and I've had enough of it. This is no ordinary individual we're dealing with here, people. Jesus is not your homie. Said that last week. That's your homeboy. Annas and Caiaphas, they got wind of, of what was going on. And the Bible says in verse eight, verse 8, they wanted him dead. Why do they want him dead now? Because he was in their pocket. And so just a few days later, in the middle of the night, this illegal arrest and trial was held to, to crucify Jesus. And guess who was at the front of the line in the trial? Caiaphas and his father-in-law. The same ones that were in the temple when Jesus said, You're a crook. Y'all get out of here. It's all about the money. See, they were pretending to truly love God, but the boss rolls in, starts messing with their prophets, and their hypocrisy flowed from their veins like they had been cut open to the core. And so the question for us is, why do you worship? Why are you even here this morning? What is the purpose of your praise? Instead of seeking God's face in repentance, people were ripping each other off and bank-lolling the guests, all while hindering the place and the purpose of worship. And so this is on your notes. <clears throat> we invite the presence of God in here. Why? Because the boss rolls in our life to recapture our selfishly distracted hearts. It is really easy to do, isn't it? Men church, boss rolls in. And here's why I believe that Jesus had such righteous anger and why he was so upset is because the presence of this religious market turned many sensitive uh, Gentiles away from knowing truth. So Jesus, he was broken and he was rightfully, righteously angry after seeing the way God's people treated worshiping each other. And all the while, the nations that came to the temple to try to have a relationship with God just walked out, never really sensing real peace. Church 213, people are watching our worship. 
People are watching your feeds. People are watching what you do, how you act, what you say, the fruit of our worship. We have to be very careful because the nations are thirsty. The nations are thirsty. And if you lose focus, people can't hear what you have to say because your actions are too loud. That's the name. That's what was going on right here in the temple. Their actions were too loud. If you lose focus, you can say all the right words, but they're not going to hear it because your actions are too loud. And so, I'll close with this. John Piper has a great quote that kind of sums this up. It's this, it says this, it's been quoted that worship has nothing to do with how you sound. Amen. It has everything to do with who you are singing to and where you're singing from. And so things must change when the boss shows up. He's in control whether you are submitting or not. And so my encouragement this morning is for you to be, let's be a cult. Let's not be a tree. Let's not just look the part, but let's be so gentle and humble and available that whatever the Lord says is his will, while we might not understand it, we let him get on our backs and we follow him to the cross. And with that, the nations will be reached. Revival will break out. A spiritual awakening will break in this community, but it starts with a revival in the hearts of the believers because the temple is always where the culture is set, right here. And as this place, because this isn't the temple of God, we are, which means wherever you go, that is the temple for you. So it starts with us. It starts in your home. It starts in your... You want to be a church planter? Plant one in your house. And then let it go out from there. Let this be real. Let this place be full of such power because of the purity of its people. So I want to have just a time of, of invitation for us. A time for... You just think about a few things. One, are you a cult or are you a tree? Is it real or is it just routine? Are you running well this summer for the glory of God? And if there are things that you know you are doing or have done that have caused others to stumble, I encourage you to lay that down in repentance this morning. Because God is going to boss where he needs to boss. So let's not fight the creator of creation. Let's allow him to do the work that he needs to do in here. So that we can go out there and be on mission field to the nations. Not just say it. Let's live it. Let's love one another for the glory of God. Amen. Because good things happen when you let the ball show up.